Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which lover and fighter Jeremy Hardy answers the age-old question, what's it all about, Duchess of Malfi? This week, how to exercise power. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Donaldson. And may I say how pre-recorded you sound this evening? You see, listener, nothing. But as Peter so rightly said, tonight's programme is called How to Exercise Power. And to help me unravel this tangled conundrum of existential Christmas tree lights, I'm joined by an old friend of the programme, Gordon Kennedy. Hello. And a newcomer to the show, writer, comic and actor, Katie Brand. Hello. Now, Katie, our subject tonight is power. Did you make the recent Woman's Hour power list? No, I didn't. I just don't think they understand the power of comedy to change people's minds. Did you tell them that? Yes, but they weren't having it. I suppose I should have done a funny voice. Yeah, funny voice, funny costume, worked for Hitler. <laughs> but you're not without power, because you've had your own TV series. Well, you say that, but these things never turn out the way you hoped. You think you've got some control, but you haven't. It's like you've got your own series, but it's not what you wanted to do. What did you want to do? I wanted to run one of those knick-knacky shops that sell handmade stationery and gifts priced at roughly the value of someone you don't know that well. <laughs> All my guests get scented candles, cow. Now, Gordon, since we last worked together, you've continued to pop up in all those things that come to an end just when you're getting used to regular work. <laughs> Thank you. But you're also co-owner of a production company. Now, that must be strange, because one minute you're a powerless ingenue on the casting couch, and the next you're a ruthless Hollywood mogul-stroke-Alfred-Hitchcock-type bastard. Well, yeah, I do sometimes feel like poacher-turned-gamekeeper. What? What's an expression? Poacher turned gamekeeper. You go from setting traps for woodland creatures to setting traps for people. You really are a bastard, aren't you? <laughs> it's just an expression. I know what an expression is. I have done acting. Look, powerful. No. <laughs> that's not powerful. I'd say that's uh, nonplussed. What do you think, Katie? I'd say nonplussed, bordering on trapped wind. I haven't started <laughs> doing it yet. I was just drawing on a personal experience from my past. <laughs> <laughs> when did you feel powerful, Jeremy? I had a pet mouse. I was taller than him. Anyway, <laughs> I need to get on. Well, you're the boss. Yes, yes, I am. Now, on with the subject of tonight's lecture. There are many kinds of power. One of them is what's been called soft power, which is, as it sounds, meaningless rubbish to sell books. So let's not waste <laughs> any more time on it. But power is more complicated than it's sometimes said to be. Chairman Mao wrote, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. He wrote lots of things like that because he was quite moody, but also terribly pleased with himself. <laughs> I suppose you don't lead a revolutionary war to take control of the largest country on earth without a lot of self-belief. That's why none of his famous phrases begin, I reckon, or tell me if I'm talking out of my ass." <laughs> To some people, revolution is still synonymous with armed struggle, even though an armed struggle can chug along for years in a symbiotic relationship with the state. Governments love an internal threat because it keeps people on their toes and saves on travel expenses. But the AK-47 is an iconic revolutionary image despite being just a gun. It fires bullets, but that's about it. It has no apps. 
You can brandish it. You can hold it aloft horizontally with one hand and move it up and down in a crowd scene if you're an African or Middle Eastern film extra. <laughs> Interestingly, it was Native American film extras who pioneered that gesture, usually with Winchesters, though Hollywood has long since dispensed with their services. But basically, the automatic Kalashnikov is a very straightforward, low-cost assault weapon. It's like the one show. Lightweight, unsophisticated, but undeniably popular. <laughs> and a quick way of getting publicity. And the accessibility of the AK means there's almost something democratic about it. That's the argument put forward by the American gun lobby, that if citizens have the right to bear arms, federal government can't impose something tyrannical like gun control, or free health care, or social justice. And gun owners believe their weapons even up the power balance between the good citizen and the criminal, because being prepared to do violence gives a person quite a lot of power. And there's the rub. For a gun to give you power, you must be prepared to use it. The hope is you don't have to, so the theory is everyone has a weapon, no one uses it. Well, that's worked really well in the case of sarcasm, hasn't it? <laughs> Many Americans are used to guns and relaxed about them and never hurt anyone. In this country, most of us don't like the idea of armed police. In other countries, it's normal, and police are used to it. Most of our police are only given guns on special occasions, so they immediately get overexcited and shoot someone. <laughs> but violence is an obvious source of power, so let's talk about some more subtle kinds. Power can be a state of mind. For one thing, it takes confidence to seek power, to keep it, or to challenge it. So confidence is power. Believing you can change the world doesn't mean you will, but if you don't believe you can, you won't, unless by accident. And then it's most likely you'll change it for the worse, because you're a clumsy lab technician at Porton Down, or a White House cleaner with a fascination for what buttons do. <laughs> say you actively want to change the world for the better. It's common for older people to say things like, When I was young, I thought I could change the world like these climate-warming activists. But as you get older and wiser, you realise, well, you can't change the world. One thing I'm certain of is that as we get older, we don't get wiser. We get knackered or we get complacent. The reason activists are often young is not naivety. They're at their intellectual peak. And what makes them so active is they've got so much more energy, so much more passion and so much more time. Their lives are just less full of rubbish. They don't spend their weekends in Pelmet Warehouse or World of Grouting. <laughs> You might watch the news and see people marching and say... Oh, what's the point? It's not going to make any difference. But how did you spend your Saturday? What difference did you make? Choose your new cupboard handles, did you? Think your new kitchen will make you happy? Yes, well done, you've really opened it out. It's made such a difference, all your guests will say so. Now you'll be able to chat to them while you cook, so the poor starlings have to wait till ten o'clock to eat, because you can't be asked to have it ready for them when they arrive. <laughs> they have to sit there for three hours admiring your units. Well done, you. It's a great kitchen, but you're still going to die in pain or on morphine. And your legacy, your legacy will be granite effect worktops for future generations. You sacrificed your youthful radicalism so that they don't have to. Uh, Jeremy, yeah, if I can interrupt, uh, and I can, because I'm bigger and stronger than you, you're missing the point of the open plan kitchen. It is all about 
power. Oh, is it? Yes. If I make you dinner, it's on my terms. Okay. And nowadays, a kitchen's not just a place to hide women, you know, so you can all <laughs> sit at the dining table and we're out of sight and then we meekly appear through a hatch saying, I hope it's all right. Yeah, that's a very good point, Katie. And now you will believe it's all right, Jeremy, because you saw me create it. And you're so desperate by the time you get it, you'll eat anything. <laughs> Blimey, there's a lot more to this than I thought. I've obviously only scratched the surface. If you scratch my surfaces. It's an expression. Good, because I'm in no mood for re-oiling. Let's continue. <laughs> Maybe it's not your fault if you've given up protest. Maybe you're not smug or lazy. Maybe you just got beaten down. What if, ten years ago, you marched against the Iraq war? If millions of people taking to the streets can't turn a government round, who can? Well, you nearly did. Rulers sometimes lose power or bend to the power of the people because they, or those around them, lose their nerve. But we blinked first. We went home, and we were a responsible group of people exercising our right to demonstrate peacefully in a democracy. Completely ineffectual, in other words. You don't bring change with a chant of, honestly, you won't even know we're here. <laughs> It's fine to speak truth unto power, but the cold reality is that their ears open when you break things. Thatcher fell in 1990 because the police attacked the poll tax march and it all kicked off. So what would have made the difference in 2003 and stopped Tony Blair taking us into Iraq? Maybe just the immolation of about four cars close to a central London landmark. <laughs> Not violence against people. That just emboldens our leaders to be more repressive. Burn their cars and then see how keen on cycling they are. <laughs> so, you see, to gain power or to fight it, you need confidence. Downtrodden people seldom become revolutionary until they're pushed to the limit. That's why we have downtrodden people. They're not usually a bother. Anyone who's seen Les Miserables and knows the depths of humiliation actors are prepared to endure. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, people who believe they can change the world often derive their self-confidence from relative privilege. At the moment, much is made of the fact that we're ruled by some very posh people. Now, I'm a lower middle-class grammar school boy, and we're the worst for inverted snobbery because we hate ourselves for being neither one thing nor the other. But to attack conservatives just for being posh is to ignore the tradition of very posh lefties. One thinks of beloved departed friends of mine, Humphrey Littleton and Paul Foote, educated at Eton and Shrewsbury respectively, and Tony Benn went to Westminster and is still very much with us. Now, critics will sneer and say such people are hypocrites, but they're the opposite of hypocrites because it would be in their interests to be right-wing. But they know it's just not sporting. I'm talking about properly posh lefties, not mockney radicals from minor independent schools. Tough bolshies. <laughs> One of the brilliant things about them is they've got the confidence of their class. They don't fear capitalism as some all-powerful force. They just know it's rather a poor show. And Ed Miliband keeps calling the Tories a shower, but it doesn't work in his voice or mine. You have to have a certain accent to use that word effectively. You have to say, the Tories are an absolute shower. <laughs> Jolly well, pass off. <laughs> the point about Osborne and Cameron is they're a horrible kind of posh, braying hoorays, having a tremendous luck playing at running a country. And if anything gets in their way, it's as though it's the first day of the grouse season and one of the beaters has been shot and his widow's kicking up a bit of a bloody stink about it. <laughs> 
And they have the confidence to go further than Margaret Thatcher dared to. For Conservatives, privatising is not about relinquishing power, it's transferring power to the interests they represent. And Labour's protests are feeble because so much of what's happening is a continuation of what they did. Although, I think the reason Miliband looks so weird all the time is that he knows from his upbringing that capitalism doesn't work, but he's afraid to say it. He's concentrating so hard on not saying it, he just talks unending gibberish to fill up the day. <laughs> He was raised in an intellectual Marxist ferment. Eric Hobsbawm would come round on his birthday and give him a fuzzy felt capital accumulation game. <laughs> his mother kept a drawer full of dialectical material. <laughs> now, I think Conservatives also know the free market doesn't really work, which is why they're so belligerent about defending it. It does work. It works perfectly. Just don't touch it. <laughs> All it needs is a little help. Properly subsidised, backed up by the police and the army. It'll last forever. Oh, it's gone wrong now. You must have looked at it. <laughs> they know it doesn't work. They live with it night and day. The same reason that genuinely religious people so often don't believe in God. You'd think that with everything that's happened in the last few years, everyone would realise that the private sector is simply incompetence combined with greed. At least the public sector is well-meaning incompetence. <laughs> Human beings are fundamentally incompetent. It's only our motivation that varies. Of course the BBC is run by idiots. Everything is run by idiots. <laughs> Who do you know who's any good at their job? <laughs> there are some things the private sector does better. Coffee. Coffee is done better by the private sector. When the railways were properly nationalised, there was one jar of mellow birds for the entire network. <laughs> Invariably stranded at crew. Today, if you turn up at a train station, there's a fighting chance you can buy a real cup of coffee made from real coffee beans. Sometimes even on the trains, on the intercity ones, if the machine's working. So, if that's your main reason for taking a train, you'll be happy. It seems an elaborate and expensive alternative to a cafetiere, but if that's your motivation, you'll be thrilled by the bracing power of market forces. If, however, your main concern is that the train should stay on the long metal things that run along the ground, you lean towards renationalisation. If you turn up at a hospital dying for a cup of coffee, you'll be delighted to find Costa in the atrium. If you turn up at a hospital just dying, it's an NHS hospital because private hospitals don't have A&E. Try turning up at a private hospital complaining of severe chest pains. All they can do is give you some breasts. <laughs> One or two, depending on your credit rating. And all those who don't want state regulation of the food industry say nay. But Liberal Democrats, despite being ostensibly to the left of the Conservatives, just don't see how rubbish the market is. Cable must do, because he worked for Shell. But even he thinks capitalism can be rehabilitated, because Liberals are unfailingly optimistic. They see the business world's humanising flourishes as signs of progress. Do you know what I love about Sir Richard Branson?
He conducts all his business meetings in linen trousers. Yes, yes, yes. And if we could just get him into a cagoule, collectivist ideas would be redundant. Oh, exactly. And I'll tell you another thing. Yesterday, I asked a lovely assistant in the supermarket where the onion marmalade was, and he didn't just tell me, he took me to the very spot. It was like having a dedicated mountain guide on a charity trek in the Himalayas. <laughs> You see, I hate when shelf stackers do that, because they've been told to. They're not being encouraged to show initiative. They've just been given more work. So they sigh and stop what they're doing and say, Follow me. And I think, I think, don't look at me like that. It wasn't my idea. If I wanted us to go for a walk together, I'd suggest the Cotswolds. <laughs> They did it of their own free will because they had the power to express themselves in the workplace, that'd be lovely. For example, there's a bloke on the till at the Little Sainsbury's on Stretton Hill who says funny things when he's bagging, which is great because it makes you doubly glad you didn't self-check out and reminds you that people are funny, which makes what I do redundant. <laughs> if, I, if I just stood here putting shopping in a bag, the audience would say, well, any fool can do that, but you'd be wrong because there's a knack to it if you don't want to put the cucumber through the side or crush the rocket. And this guy manages that, and he's funny. And there used to be a lady in Brixton Tesco's on the checkout who would say, How are you doing, darling? Because she's from Lower Stuffed. <laughs> and you'd say, Fine, how are you expecting a corporate script? But she'd say, I'm fine because the Lord Jesus is in me life. And that was great. That was, that was who she was. She didn't evangelise. She didn't say, have you got a divine reward card? She just, <laughs> she just wanted to share that she was happy and I was happy for her. And I looked forward to seeing her. But then one time I went in, I made sure I got in her queue and I got up to the till and I said, how are you expecting the whole Jesus bit? But she just nodded and, and just looked down and sad and she'd obviously been silenced someone had got to her and i felt like saying we can't speak here meet me in the cafe next to the bookshop on kropotkinstrasse in 15 minutes and come alone <laughs> anyway i think maybe it's because liberals don't realize the market doesn't work while the tories secretly do that the lib dems are prepared to accept such a junior role, in the same way that children respect adults until they figure out we're idiots. <laughs> but there are differences that make the coalition unsustainable, principally Europe and the Constitution. Conservatives love a row with Brussels, because upsetting foreigners is second only to killing them and stimulating the pleasure centres of the Conservative Party. <laughs> but liberals love Europe more than anything. Oh, they love Anything continental, everything, the voting systems, the cheeses, their whole inspiration stems from the vast superiority of French campsites. <laughs> I'm not referring to old-fashioned radical liberals who are happy with a good cheddar, a thermos and a wet walking holiday reading a biography of Joe Grimmond. And in fairness to liberals, all liberals like democracy a lot. See, we on the left are ambivalent about it. We pay lip service to it, but privately can't help suspecting that people are too stupid to realise the very high regard that we have for them. But liberals love anything that involves voting. I just don't know what to think. Do you know what to think? No, I don't know what to think. <laughs> we could ask the public and see if they know. Ooh, a vote. Good idea. Do you think we should, though? I don't know. 
Perhaps we should vote on it. Oh, good idea. <laughs> but which voting system should we use? AV or STV? What's STV? Um, sexually transmitted vote. Mm, good idea. <laughs> Get your waterproofs off. Righty-ho. <laughs> which is good, because they want to disperse power, and they were sure they could get the House of Lords democratised. But the Tories liked the Lords as it used to be, because they like things to be inherited. Titles, wealth, land, disorders. <laughs> and this, this is where Clegg hit the buffers. Constitutional reform and then Europe. And now most people think he's powerless, while the Tory right hate him, because they think he's got power over Cameron. So how did he allow himself to get into this mess? Maybe background. Maybe he sat down with Osborne and Cameron and liked being with people of his own class. And when you see the three of them together, it's like the end of Animal Farm. You look from one to the other and you can't tell which is which. <laughs> now, working class Tory MPs resent all of them for having everything handed to them on a plate, never having had to trample on anyone to get where they are, because all the trampling had been done for them. So, not having the toughness of Norman Tebbit or David Davis or Liam Fox, self-made men who didn't read the instructions. <laughs> you know what Liam Fox did after his disgrace? He was brought in as an advisor to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Thank God for that, eh? You see, Fox is a proper Conservative, so he supports the Republicans. Cameron doesn't really believe in anything apart from himself. He just likes Obama because he's always wanted to have a friend who's black. <laughs> and that was the only way he was ever going to get one, realistically. I'm a world leader and do it that way. And he probably always wanted rid of Fox, because Fox is a working-class boot boy who believes in stuff. And the thing about little Liam is, not only did he come from a working-class background, he's also Scottish. Now, Gordon, tell us something about working-class Scottish Tories. Well, I'm only one of those things. Which one? Scottish. Oh! <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I thought that's why you asked. No, I'm just ignorant. Oh. OK, well, broadly speaking, to be Scottish and working class and a Conservative, you've got to be pretty hard, because you've been an outcast all your life. Right. I mean, we don't really have Tories in Scotland anymore. They're pretty much extinct, which is why they're hunted on behalf of foreign collectors like Romney. <laughs> also, that's why all the Tory MPs who are Scottish have English constituencies. Exactly. Fox is down in Somerset, representing some village... Oh, little bigot on the necks of the poor? That's it. <laughs> in Surrey. Ah, now he is interesting. Public school, but on a scholarship. See, in Cabinet, he's the brainy Scot at the Edwardian Country House weekend, invited to add intellectual weight at dinner. Ah, oh, Gove, delighted you could join us. Mr Gove here has some fascinating insights into the thinking of the lower middle class. Oh, how beastly. <laughs> But Osborne and Cameron are impressed by him because they find him relatively earthy and he knows a bit about punk rock. And all the posh Tories claim to be huge fans of punk rock. They do. They think it makes them edgy. And this is really wrong. I was doing a radio show with Billy Bragg last year and he told me he once ran into Osborne at some TV studio and Osborne started quoting his lyrics because it turns out George Osborne is a huge Billy Bragg fan. <laughs> I know. 
I suppose it's like plantation owners going out onto the veranda to listen to the slaves sing. These lefties sure have rhythm. Wella! Wella! Come here, pour me my mint julep. <laughs> Osborne wants us to think he's a bit rock and roll. He does look like someone who's lived, just not in the last 200 years. <laughs> now, Michael Gove is interesting because he's an ideologue, but he thinks he's a pragmatist because he admires Tony Blair. How much more of a right-wing zealot could you get than Tony Blair? <laughs> Blair started the whole Academy's nonsense and Gove ran with it. And what greater power can a man have than control over young minds, than in shaping the next generation? Gove shouldn't be allowed anywhere near schools. His decisions are based entirely on his own school days. You're not allowed to do that. Your child is something you have therapy for. You don't turn it into an ideology. <laughs> You don't use power to assist in the fantastical recreation of your own life story. It's noticeable he places no emphasis on sport, something he admits he was rubbish at. There's to be no focus on music or drama or anything else that popular kids do. I'm sure, I'm sure his guidelines for free schools state that all pupils must respect boys with glasses and girls must let them touch them upstairs. <laughs> And the only continuity in education is that all the competing and overweening dilettantes having a go at running free schools and academies will have to bow to the women fancy of one all-powerful man. It's organised chaos. Privatisation plus dictatorship, like Pinochet's Chile, except there'll be no sports grounds into which to herd his opponents. <laughs> Parental choice. Parents are the last people who should have any say in their kids' upbringing. <laughs> Look at the mess we make of it. The whole point of education is to rescue children from their parents' clutches. <laughs> the tyranny of parental power, because parents treat children as property. They do all kinds of stupid things. They decide their daughter influenza won't be stretched by the local primary, so they put her in a private school. Now, I know that some of you will have done this... And I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> and you'll say... You can't put your socialist principles before your child. I mean, your, your child must come first. Yes, yes, your child must come first. And, 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 and if you have more than one, well, well, then you pick the best one and you use the others for bone marrow. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are going to do it, at least choose somewhere with a fairly neutral, normal uniform so they can blend in with their surroundings on the way home. Don't send them to a school whose uniform is some sort of Elizabethan beekeeping costume. <laughs> You're making them a pebble magnet. You're the nitwit. If you want to be a target for stone throwers, you go out in vermilion plus fours and a turquoise bolero. <laughs> say, I'll do what's best for my kids. But you don't. You're like a colonial power. You have them to satisfy your needs and then you mess them up as much as you can before independence. <laughs> now, of course, by now, many listeners will have switched off, deciding, <laughs> deciding that the last half hour has been typical of everything they hate about the BBC. There is an angry constituency who believe that power in our society has shifted in favour of what they call the liberal elite. Because in their minds, the world is run not by politicians and businessmen, but by a conspiracy of creative progressives, the Illuminati Farty, <laughs> who operate the levers of power through the medium of performance poetry. Well, 
If the military-industrial complex were dependent on lottery funding, they might have a point. But the only area in which arty liberals wield any power is the arts, where, in fairness, there are quite a lot of them. And in all honesty, they do look kindly upon those of us who are on the left. So it might be reasonable to say that we are rather numerous in the arts, but we have very little influence, because we're not very popular. Bless those of you who are listening, but you're hardly representative. <laughs> well, we could talk forever about power. In fact, we do, and that's why we haven't got any. But it's time to go, so cast, I hope I have at least left you feeling empowered. Well, you haven't done what you said you were going to do. Yeah, typical liberal. You were supposed to tell us how to exercise power. I can't dictate that, Gordon. All I can do is give you the tools to take power. <laughs> what, scented candles? Well, <laughs> think of them as fragrant petrol bombs. Good night. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was orchestrated by Jeremy Hardy with the unwitting involvement of Gordon Kennedy and Katie Brand. The leader of the group was David Tyler, and the programme is a positive production for the so-called British, more like Bolshevik, Broadcasting Corporation.